Well, if you will, open me in your Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. It's mornings like today when I'm grateful that the saints of old who built meeting houses for the people of God built it with natural acoustics in mind. (laughs) Um, So we will uh, get along just fine. I'm sure you can hear me just fine as well. I know I'm naturally a louder voice anyways, but um, it's uh, it's days like this. I'm also reminded as well about... um, uh, why the word uh, preaching is what it is. Uh, it comes from the word uh, in the New Testament that means to herald things, right? You have to proclaim things, and that was uh, because when you were in a uh, crowd or on a mountain with many people, you've got to raise your voice, right? You're, you're proclaiming, and so we will do that uh, very thing today. Uh, but we are in uh, Psalm 32 this morning, and um, we're going to read the whole psalm together uh, as we begin our time, but uh, today we're only going to focus on the first two verses, uh, verse 1 and 2. But again, like I said, we'll read through the whole psalm uh, together and then uh, focus our attention on the first two. Uh, so we see here, it says that this is a mascal of David. David is writing here under the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit, and we begin by reading in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Well, let's go again uh, to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is an almost unimaginable and unfathomable 
truth. That our sins, all of our rebellions, all of our outward displays of evil, and all of our inward corruptions can be forgiven by You who are righteous and pure and holy and cannot look upon sin and be pleased in any way. It is the great glory of the Gospel and a great testimony of Your love and Your grace that we through Christ and by faith in Him can stand before You and can hear the declaration of the judge. Not only not guilty, but righteous. Lord, I pray that this morning, as we consider the truths that are found in this psalm, I pray that You would help us to not only understand with our minds the glorious truth of the forgiveness of sins, but that we would love it. That our hearts would be constrained by it and our lives would live in the true freedom that comes through it. I pray that You would do this for us this day. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our subject this morning is the blessing of justification. The blessing of justification. Justification is one of the doctrines that is at the very heart of the Gospel. It refers to how a person can be declared, can be seen, can be recognized as righteous before a holy God. That is a central problem. That is a central issue for humanity. Men are evil. We are sinners by nature. We are fallen in Adam. Men have become corrupt. They have become enslaved to wicked passions. They are diseased in their very souls, in the core of who they are. They are bound by the powers of darkness. They are foolish in their minds because they are darkened in heart. They do not think properly. There are not proper, right, logical conclusions and inferences that are being drawn from the mind of man because his mind is darkened. He is covered completely in death. And as a result, all men by nature, stand condemned by a thrice holy 
God. It is not just that in the final judgment He will be condemned. Jesus makes very clear that right now, if you do not know Christ, if you've heard of Him and rejected Him, or even if you've never heard of Him before, all men are under condemnation now. Not on the basis of what gospel message they may have or may have not heard, but on the basis of their nature and the evil of their deeds. We have inherited Adam's nature and all men live in accordance with that fallen nature. There is no one who stands outside of this condemnation. There are no innocents who have or who will escape the corruptions of sin. And therefore, mankind has a profound, pronounced, and deep problem. He cannot change his nature. He cannot erase his sinfulness by doing good works because even the best of his works are tainted with sin. They are nothing more than filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. Man cannot do anything to remove the taint of this sin. He cannot be justified before God on the basis of any works that He does. But at the heart of the Gospel is a doctrine that answers and speaks to this very dilemma. A problem, a dilemma, again, that cannot be remedied by ourselves. The Gospel speaks directly to this very problem. At the heart of the Gospel is the revelation of the doctrine of justification, which proclaims to all who would receive it, and with the authority of the loud, crashing gavel of the judge himself, it proclaims that there is a way for a man to be justified before God. A man can be justified before God not because of any moral reformation he may endeavor to work out in his life. And a man may be justified not because of any amount of religious rituals that he performs. Even if those rituals are commended and commanded by God to be done. A man, in other words, cannot be justified by God by undergoing baptism. 
A man cannot be justified by God by offering up the sinner's prayer or walking down the aisle of an altar or doing any sort of ritual that may be found within a local church. A man is declared righteous, justified before God by faith in the person of Christ Jesus and by faith in Him alone. It is on the basis of the righteousness of another and receiving that righteousness as a gift by faith that we who are sinners and we who are enemies of God can be declared righteous before Him. Now, this is a truth that is, of course, central to the Gospel. It is central to the Apostle Paul's exposition of the Gospel, especially in the book of Romans. This is what he labors to teach and explain throughout essentially the first half of the book of Romans. After he's made the point from chapters 1 to 3 that all men, both Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles, all men are under sin. And they cannot be justified by works of the law. After Paul labors to declare what the bad news is and what the human dilemma is, he then moves into explaining what the good news is that answers the problem of that bad news. And he declares that a man can be justified by the grace of God as a gift. In Romans chapter 3, he says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And as his argument proceeds, he goes on to ground this very point, this very truth in the Old Testament Scriptures themselves. This is not, in other words, something that's altogether new. Paul doesn't invent this doctrine. Jesus doesn't invent this doctrine. It doesn't just come out of nowhere when you get to the New Testament. It is not as if the Old Testament taught one way of justification. Justification by works of the law. If you keep the law, you'll be justified. While the New Testament teaches another way. Now Paul proves that men have been justified in the same way. By faith since the very beginning. There was a righteousness that was available to men 
apart from the law. Apart from doing righteous deeds yourself. Apart from fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law yourself. Although, Paul says, the law and the prophets did bear witness to it. And to use Martin Luther's phrase, this alien righteousness, this righteousness that is outside of ourselves and that could be granted to a man despite his unrighteous nature, this alien righteousness is received by faith as it was then and as it is now. And in order to demonstrate this, Paul appeals to two Old Testament texts in particular. One is in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which we'll look at later, where Abraham is said to have believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the other text is this very psalm. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. There's an emphasis there in the original. He will not in any way, bold, italicized, underline, all of the above, he will in no way count the blessed man's sin against him. And when Paul introduces this very psalm in his argument, he says something important. He says that here, David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. This is in Romans chapter 4, verse 7. This psalm, then, is David's poetic exposition of the blessed man's justification before God. How could a man, if we think back to our Old Testament prominent figures like David, How could a man like David, who even though he loved the Lord, he was nevertheless a guilty sinner, like all of us? How could David, who had blood on his hands and who had guilt before God, how could he be counted righteous before God? And the answer to that question is given in the opening lines of this psalm. Here, we find the great spiritual blessing of justification that is granted not only to David, but to all who, like David, believe 
in the Lord. And I want us to consider what this psalm teaches about justification as we consider these opening verses this morning. And we'll do so in three parts. And the first thing I want us to consider is that in justification comes the forgiving of transgression. In justification comes the forgiving of transgression. Our sins, our misdeeds, our crimes, our treason against God is forgiven. And it's forgiven not partially, not slightly, not progressively, but it is forgiven completely. There is nothing left to be considered. All of it, all transgression is forgiven. David says again in the opening line, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Now, I think it's easy to probably hear a word like forgiven and to simply think that this describes some sentiment, right? some idea, some words that are spoken, a, a thought, a magical wave of the wand of God. When He forgives transgression, He simply makes a declaration. I don't care about it anymore. I'm not going to look at it anymore. He tells us that we're no longer accountable. He will disregard the transgression and move past it as a mere act of arbitrary mercy. It's easy to think of forgiveness like that because that's somehow how we practice forgiveness. It's just a, you hear an apology, you say you're forgiven, and you move on. It's just a, a verbal declaration. I'm not going to think about it anymore. But there is much more going on here when God forgives transgression. He does not, in this case, disregard His justice when He forgives. Rather, He upholds it. He does not say, I'm not going to punish iniquity anymore. No, He deals with it. He punishes it. There is something active that God is doing such that He can justly forgive transgression. And the language of forgiveness in this line, if we probe its depths a little bit more, can show us more of the richness of what takes place when God forgives transgression. The word that He used here for forgiveness often communicates the idea of carrying something or lifting something up or bearing some load of some kind. 
If we go back to the very beginning of Scripture, for example, in Genesis chapter 4, we read there of that horrific account of fratricide when Cain murdered his own brother Abel. And we read that Abel's blood was crying out from the ground to the Lord. It's a call for justice. A great evil, a great injustice has been committed and it demands a judgment. And God, when He hears the cry for justice, He answers and He curses Cain for his wicked deed. And when He did, Cain responded to the Lord by saying, My punishment or my condemnation is greater than I can bear. I can't carry it. I can't hold it up. It is too heavy for me. This is the same word. And we find here for forgiveness, only here it's in its active form. It is Cain who is actively bearing the consequences of his sin as he is condemned before God. He is holding the curse of God upon his own shoulders. There's no mediator for him. There's no intercessor. There's no substitute. There's no sacrifice. All of God's judgment has fallen upon him. And he says, I can't bear it. His guilt is borne by him and him alone. Or, we might consider another example where this word is found. What took place on the Day of Atonement as another illustration. On the Day of Atonement, the priests were instructed, of course, to take two goats for the ritual on the Day of Atonement, for the things that were to be performed in order to atone for Israel's sin. One of these goats would be sacrificed as a sin offering on behalf of all the people. Its blood would be spilled so that their sins would be atoned for. But the other goat also had a symbolic role, but it would not be sacrificed the other goat would remain alive. But what the high priest was instructed to do with this living goat was he was, he was commanded to lay his hands on the head of that goat. And as he does, he's going to confess all of the corporate sins of the people of Israel. And of course, this would not be an exhaustive list. They'd be there for eternity. Right? But these are those known corporate sins of the nation. We're idolaters. We've been sacrificing to the Baals. We've been going after other gods. There is blood on our hands. A multitude of sins that no doubt Israel 
had committed. But the high priest lays his hand on the head of the goat and he confesses those sins of the people. It was an act of symbolically transferring all of Israel's guilt onto the goat. And when that had been done, the goat would then be sent away into the wilderness, never to return. And we read in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 22, it says, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he, the high priest, shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The goat, in other words, bears in itself the iniquity of the people of Israel. And then that iniquity is carried away from the people into the wilderness, never to be seen again. The people of Israel do not bear their guilt like Cain did with his. Rather, their guilt is transferred to another and then it is carried away into the wilderness. Now, we know that this particular ritual was no permanent solution to the problem of sin. Because as the book of Hebrews points out, the fact that this ritual had to be performed again and again, year after year after year, testified to the insufficiency of animals bearing the load of guilt of sinful man. They can't do that. It was for the purpose of external outward purification so that they could, as a people, dwell in the presence of God, but their consciences and their hearts were still loaded with sin. And it was not taken away. Something greater than a goat was needed. But in the Old Testament, we do then find another important place where this same word for bearing or carrying something is found. It comes in the servant song of Isaiah 53. A song that, of course, prophetically describes the atoning work, not of a bull, not of a goat, not of a lamb, but of a man who would be slaughtered like a lamb and like a goat. This man, Isaiah says, would be crushed by the Lord. He would be put to grief. His soul would make an offering for guilt. He would be a man of sorrows. But it would be his very wounds and his very own afflictions, Isaiah says, that would then heal us. Verse 5 says that he would be pierced for our transgressions. Verse 6 says that the Lord would lay on him our iniquities. 
Verse 11 says that He would make many to be accounted righteous. And in verse 12, we find that important word. He would bear the sin of many and make intercession for the transgressors. This is here one of the clearest expositions of the atoning work of Christ in all of the Old Testament. And it explains for us how our transgressions can be forgiven. The word in our psalm for forgiveness is the same word that is used in all of these other examples for bearing something. Only in all of these other examples, the word is in the active voice. Whereas in our psalm, it's in the passive. Which means that if we were to retain here the meaning of bearing or carrying something, verse 1 might say something like, blessed is the one whose transgression is born. Blessed is the one whose transgression is carried. Meaning that it has been borne by someone else. There's a substitute. It's been taken away from the blessed man and laid on another. He is a passive receiver of someone else's work bearing the load of the guilt of his sin. The blessed man, unlike Cain, does not have the weight of the curse coming upon his own shoulders. Rather, another carries it. Another lifts it up and removes it to the wilderness. Another's blood is spilt for it. Another is punished for it. Someone else serves as a substitute so that the guilty sinner's sin is actually and justly punished while at the same time, the sinner, the one who has committed the transgression is acquitted. And that someone else, of course, we know from Scripture who bears our transgressions is Jesus Christ. He is our Lamb. He is the sacrificial offering. He is the goat who is slaughtered and the goat upon whom all our iniquities are laid and then it is sent away never to be seen again. He is our sin offering. Upon Him was our iniquity laid and because of Him our transgression, as the psalm says, is forgiven. But let us look secondly at another aspect of justification that is seen here, which concerns the covering of sin. 
the covering of sin. David says also in the psalm, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. This also is an important metaphor to consider. The covering of our sins means that they cannot be seen. They've been hidden. They can't be found. Just as Pharaoh's army during the Exodus, we are told, was covered by the waters of the sea and they went down into the depths like a stone so as not to be seen anymore. Or just as it was the case that the floods covered the whole earth as they rose above the mountains and as you looked around, there was no land at all to be seen anymore. So also are our sins covered so as not to be found or seen ever again. Our sins have marred and bruised our naked bodies. But God, as it were, clothes us with something that covers all of our unrighteousness. He gives us clean white robes and covers us so that we can stand before the beauty of His bright, white, shining glory and match that same whiteness, that same perfection. But one could also, I think, probably push this analogy too far. And I do think that it is often difficult, even for a Christian, to believe that God could truly wipe away all our sin. And so sometimes, even Christians are tempted towards unbelief. This can't really be true, right? All of it? All sin? Totally covered? Never to be seen again? Surely this can't be true. And we might be tempted to think about this very image of our sins being covered and that it's not really as good as it sounds. If our sins have been covered, maybe that means that they're still there. They're just buried deep beneath a large mound of God's grace. But if you were to dig deep enough, you're going to find them again. They're going to be discovered. And I think Christians can sometimes think this way about their own standing before God. They struggle with assurance. Can I really be saved when I go before God? Am I really going to hear justified? And there's that constant nagging doubting that is screaming at times to the conscience and to the mind that this can't really be true. 
when you die, and when you go before God, He's going to see you for who you really are. All of the covering, that's going to be removed. Your sins may be covered now, but when you stand before God, you will be naked and exposed and all that had covered you before will be removed and you will have sins to answer for. Many Christians think that when they die, and that when they go before the Lord, they're going to receive a great chastising. God's going to have the full list of all the sins they've ever committed. And He's going to make them go through each and every single one of them. Why'd you do that there? Why'd you do that here? And it's as if He's standing over them with a tyrant scowl just beating them into ashes, into rubble, ready to accuse. But friends, that kind of thinking, that itself is nothing more than the work of the accuser himself, who is Satan. That's a lie. That's not true. You might think of it this way. The dying flesh, that part of us, that old man within us, he knows he's dying. He knows his end is coming. He knows the darkness is passing away. And that sort of presentation of who God is, that is nothing more than the dying man trying with his last final breath to get you to believe something that's totally contrary to the Gospel. Totally contrary to who God has revealed Himself to be. Do you know what God would say to you if you were to ask Him? You die and you go before the Lord. And you were to say, Lord, do you see my sin? You know what he'd probably say? What sin? What do you mean, what sin? My sin. The sin I've known. The sin that's been in me, that I've wrestled with, that's been a plague to my soul my whole life. That sin, do you see it? I think we'd probably say again, what sin? And maybe at that point, you would become a little confused. Again, what do you mean? What sin? The sin, the sin that's clearly revealed in your word about my fallen, wicked nature. Do you see it? At which point, you would probably have to explain, I see no sin. When I look at you, 
I see beauty. I see perfection. I see glory. I see the radiance of righteousness. And I see a face that is wonderfully familiar. I see one whom I love with an eternal love, and one in whom there is not a single blemish. There's not even the smallest speck or imperfection to be found. I can find nothing to criticize, nothing to critique, and nothing to change. And you may wonder, how? What is it that you see? And he says, when I look at you, I see Christ, my beloved Son. I see His glory. I see His righteousness. I see His perfection. And when I look in you, I see only Christ. Because Christ is in you. And you are in Him. You have been united to Him. You, by faith, have been clothed with His majesty and glory. There is no more sin to be seen. It's been killed. It has been crucified. It's dead and it died 2,000 years ago. That's when he saw it. And that's when he punished it. So that when you come before God in Christ, He sees Christ. And He sees His body, the bride. And our sins are covered, friends. They are not covered only to be revealed again at a later time. They are covered by an unbreakable union with the Son, and they are covered not by a cloth or a robe that can be removed, but they are covered with the radiance of the majesty of the Son. And just as when the sun rises in the morning and the darkness passes away, so also when we are clothed with the radiance of the Son of God, whose radiance shines brighter than that of the light of 10,000 suns, so also does all of the darkness vanish away. The light overcomes the darkness so that it is never to be seen again. That is the blessedness 
that David speaks of when he's describing our sins being covered. They're covered to God. It is God who no longer sees them because they have been atoned for. But last of all, there's another aspect of justification that we find here and need to consider, and it concerns the counting of no iniquity. David says again, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Which is to say, he does not reckon it to us. He does not consider it. He does not credit it. He does not impute guilt to us. We have iniquity. We have sinned. And we, in the future, will sin. We are guilty before God by nature. Children of wrath even, as Paul says. And yet here, David says of the blessed man that the Lord will in no way count his iniquity. The Lord looks at the blessed man and says, you have no guilt at all. And even moreover, in addition to this, He also says, and you are righteous. You have no guilt, and you are righteous. Now this is the same language that we find, of course, for the first time in the book of Genesis, chapter 15 specifically. And there, the Lord comes to Abraham and He promises to be Abraham's shield. He promises that Abraham's reward will be very great. But as of yet, even though the Lord had promised to make Abraham a great nation, even though He had promised that the nations would be blessed in Him and they would bless themselves in Him, Abraham at this point still has no children. He has no way of seeing or having these promises realized. And so he begins to wonder, are these promises going to come through my Damascus-born servant, Eliezer? Or will it be through another? And the Lord comes to him and he tells him, no, you will have an offspring who comes from your own blood. And then he brings him outside and he tells Abraham to look up and to number all of the stars if you can. And he says to him, so shall your offspring be. The Lord made a promise to Abraham about a promised offspring who would come from his own flesh and in whom the nations would be blessed and in whom the promise of becoming a great nation would be fulfilled. This was a promise that was also linked together 
You go back further in Genesis to the promise of another offspring who would come through the woman, Eve, and who would crush the head of the serpent. Same offspring. The book of Genesis is all about tracing the coming of the offspring. So even Abraham's promises about his offspring are linked together with the very first promise made to Eve. And this was a promise ultimately about the Gospel. And who the Gospel would be about. And when Abraham heard those words, when he heard the promise of God, Moses tells us Abraham believed the Lord. He believed the Word. He believed the Gospel. He believed the covenant. He believed the promise God had made. And he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. Or more accurately, counted righteousness to him. The Lord considered or reckoned or counted Abraham righteous on the basis of Abraham's faith in the promise. And that's the same language that we find here in the psalm, only whereas it is used positively in Genesis 15, it's used negatively here. God counts righteousness to Abraham, or He imputes righteousness to him in Genesis 15. And in Psalm 32, God does not count iniquity. He does not impute iniquity to the blessed man. The two, both positive and negative, are the the same sides of the same coin. Or the two sides of the same coin. If the Lord, in other words, does not count iniquity to a man, He does count righteousness to him. And vice versa. If he counts righteousness to a man, he does not count iniquity. And this is why when the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 32, which says negatively that the Lord does not count the blessed man's sin, he introduces the very quotation by saying that this speaks of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from the works of the law. Again, they are two sides of the same coin. There is no third category. There is no such thing as a person whose sins are not counted against him and yet who is still not counted righteous before God. Now, the blessed man is the one whose sins are not counted and simultaneously he is justified and God positively declares him righteous. And just as Abraham in the Old Testament was counted righteous on the basis of faith in the promises of God, 
so also is the blessed man of Psalm 32 counted righteous on the basis of faith. All people in the Old Testament who were righteous before God were righteous by faith in the promises about the Messiah who was to come. By faith in the promise of the coming offspring. And likewise, all people who are righteous before God now and who are justified before Him now, they are justified on the basis of faith in Christ who has come and who will come again. The object of our faith has never changed. The object of faith is the serpent-crushing Christ who blesses the nations and who will renew the world. And friends, when you believe in Him, when you trust in His Word, when you trust in His promises, when you trust in Him, all of the promises of the good things that are to come in the future are made actual in you now by the Spirit. By faith, you trust in Christ. And the judicial verdict that will be issued at the final judgment, just or unjust, is rendered for you now. The gavel has already dropped. And the verdict, if you're in Christ, is justified. The future is made present within you now. By faith, the last things become present things in us. So again, if God has justified you now, you shall be justified in the future. And friends, you can consider every other point of key, essential Christian doctrine, hope, and promise in the very same way. In the future, we are promised that the world itself will be regenerated. In Matthew 19, verse 28 and 29, Jesus speaks of the new world, the time at which eternal life is inherited. Literally, He says, as the regeneration. Referring to the regeneration, the new birth of all things. And likewise, by faith, we are regenerated now by the work of the new birth, which comes through the Spirit. Likewise, the Lord promises that He will sanctify us fully, that we will be perfect, holy, renewed completely before Him, and by faith, that sanctification begins in us 
now. The Lord promises that the world and all of its evil will pass away. And by faith, we have been crucified to the world. And the world has been crucified to us. The Lord promises that the saints will rise from the dead in the same way that Christ rose from the dead. And by faith, we have been raised up together with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places. In the Spirit. In union with Christ. Faith is what brings the future to us now. Spiritually. Giving to us a taste of the glories that are to come at the consummation of all things. And so it is by faith that we can know the freedom of being guiltless before God and righteous before Him now. By faith, we can be justified. And when that happens, it, as, it is as if the, uh, the unbearable burden that Cain could not bear and that you and I could not bear, that burden is completely lifted. The infinite weight of the law and the wrath of God that stood over you and upon you is removed. So that now, in a certain sense, it's like your feet are lighter. There's not the heaviness of the guilt that makes you miserable. You ever seen someone trying to live a life to please God who doesn't know God? Right? Paul speaks about some of these people. They tried to kill him. Jews who had the law and who tried to be righteous in keeping the law. It made them so happy that they tried to murder people. Trying to be righteous in your own self will make you miserable. But the converse is also true. When the burden of the guilt of your sin is removed, that's what makes you and can make you truly a person who is full of joy and a person who can go through dark, deep, damaging afflictions and still sing the praises of God with a heart it seems like it could fly to heaven itself. Justification removes the weight of the burden of guilt against us, away from us, and frees us so that from that point on, our lives are lived not to be made right with God, but our lives are now lived in thankfulness to God. We know His ways are good because He's shown Himself to be good. 
And now the decisions I'm going to make as a disciple of Christ is one that is conformed to His Word because I've come to believe His Word is good and His ways are right. And so friends, the call to us all is to trust simply in Christ. He extends the call, the invitation every day to guilty sinners to come and He promises if you come, His yoke is light and He will give you rest from all your troubles, from all your weariness, from all your sins. Let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Father, we thank You for the glories of justification. We thank You that now by faith, we who were at enmity with You can now have peace with God. And Lord, we do pray that all here would embrace this extension of Your grace, would know the freedom that they can have in Christ hear in their conscience that they have been justified with the anticipation of the great day to come where they will again hear justified and enter into my kingdom. Give us this hope, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.